Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm John Huntsman, Chair of the Atlantic Council, and on behalf of Fred Kemp, our President, CEO, and the entire Atlantic Council family, I'm delighted to welcome you all here. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, to talk a little bit about strengthening the Atlantic P Pacific Partnership. We're today hosted by the Brent Scowcroft Center for Asia Security Initiative. Uh, I'd like to express my deep gratitude to the Embassy of Japan for their generous support for putting together today's event. Uh, I'd also like to welcome those who are watching online. Uh, please join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag ACAsia and Twitter handle ACScowcroft. An important requirement for sustaining and updating the open rules-based order is cooperation among like-minded countries in the United States, Europe, and Asia. For a variety of historical, cultural, and political reasons, there has been a tendency to consider transatlantic and transpacific issues quite separately. Though the United States has alliances in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, we have tended to operate on separate policy tracks. In an increasingly globalized world, the result very much is a gap in consultation and coordination on important issues of mutual concern among Atlantic and Pacific actors. The EU has committed to opening trade relations with China. However, the EU, like the US, has concerns on China's lack of transparency on a number of issues, industrial policies and non-tariff measures, government inter intervention in the economy, unequal access to subsidies and cheap financing, and inadequate enforcement of intellectual property rights. On the security front, there's been a surge in tensions regarding Western involvement in the region, new challenges to the rules-based order in the global commons, maritime, cyber, space, require stronger transatlantic and transpacific cooperation. Disputes in the South China Sea, cyber theft, and North Korea's nuclear weapons are challenges that are difficult in any circumstances, but very much today require a common approach. Despite the numerous challenges set forth by an increasingly volatile geopolitical climate, market developments in the Asia-Pacific region offer huge opportunities to the US and Europe, providing an historic opening to expand trade and investment and strengthen relations generally. I'm honored to be joined by a distinguished group of experts today to discuss how we can build on these opportunities and further strengthen U.S. cooperation with the region, particularly under a new U.S. administration. So without further ado, let me now turn over to our moderator, Matt Kronig, Senior Fellow with the Atlantic Council, to introduce our panelists. Thank you one and all for being here. Any particular order? Um, I think you're right. Oh, yeah. I'll be last. Well, uh, good morning. I'd like to second Governor Huntsman's welcome to today's event at the Atlantic Council. Uh, as he said, my name is Matthew Kranig. I'm a senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center here at the Atlantic Council. I'll be moderating today's event. Um, this is an important subject, strengthening Atlantic Pacific partnerships. Uh, I'm very interested in today's discussion because in addition uh, to my role as a senior fellow here, I'm also co-directing a task force on uh, strengthening uh, the rules-based order in Asia, uh, in part under Governor Huntsman's uh, direction. And one of the themes of the report is on uh, the ways the United States can leverage these traditional uh, partnerships in Europe 
to advance uh, U.S. and global interests in Asia. So I'm looking forward to the discussion because I'm hoping uh, there will be many good ideas that I can steal from my report. Uh, but we have uh, an excellent panel of, of experts here to discuss these issues. Uh, first to my left is Dr. Ellen Frost. She's a senior advisor at the East-West Institute. She, uh, she previously worked in a number of positions in the U.S. government, including uh, at the Senate, the Department of Defense, and Department of Treasury. Her most recent book is Asia's New Regionalism. To her left is Mr. Yochi Kato. He is a senior research fellow at the Rebuild Japan Initiative Foundation. He's formerly a correspondent for Asahi Shinbon, where he covered diplomacy and national security, and was the American bureau chief from 2005 to 2009. Uh, to his left is Dr. Teresa Fallon. She's director at the Center for Russia, Europe, and Asia Studies with a research focus on today's subject, uh, EU-Asia relations, uh, among other topics. And she has lived in, in Brussels, in Beijing, in Moscow, uh, working in journalism, in uh, the private sector, in business, and in the academy. Uh, finally, to her left is Dr. Nicholas Swanstrom. He's the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Security and Development Policy. His research focuses on Northeast, Central, and Southeast Asia. Uh, including uh, Chinese foreign policy, narcotics trafficking, and other issues. Uh, so the plan today is to have each of our speakers give opening remarks for five, eight, or, or so minutes. Uh, then we're going to turn to the polling results. Uh, when you first got here, we asked you to take a poll, uh, so we're going to see uh, those results and comment on those. I'll take my prerogative as the, the moderator to ask a few questions of the panel, and then we'll open it up to the audience for question and answer and we'll aim to end uh, at 11.30 sharp. Uh, so without further ado, let's begin the discussion, and let's begin uh, to my immediate left with Dr. Ellen Frost. The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, I'm going to begin with two um, rather gloomy general remarks <laughs> and that, and that uh, we may not in this room be able to do too much about. Um, then I'm going to turn to some challenges uh, that I've observed in working with Asians and Europeans over the years. Uh, and then I'm going to focus um, on one of the areas that, uh, that is in the title of this general um, theme, namely uh, maritime issues. Uh, so the first um, gloomy comment is, uh, and I've been saying this for years, uh, is that I think there's been a slow crisis of legitimacy uh, dating at least to the Asia financial crisis of of 1997-98. Um, I think this crisis of legitimacy has had something to do with the uh, failure of both the United States and Europe to move quickly enough to give uh, increased voting share to China and the developing countries within the international development institutions. I think it has something to do with the rise of inequality, both within our societies and among um, uh, and uh, within the, the world, among different countries. Um, I think the United States' failure to um, ratify the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea feeds into it. In other words, um, for some time now, I don't think we allies have been looking so good. And when you add to that the economic stagnation in both Japan and Europe, um, we're somehow, uh, I think, unaware of, of the slippage of our legitimacy as um, underpinning uh, foundations of the international uh, order. Um, uh, I'm being deliberately pessimistic here, but, but uh, I think it's important to face this. The second gloomy remark is uh, that I think there's, we have, a, just as we have a, a, a long-term 
um, crisis of legitimacy that I just discussed. We have an immediate crisis of credibility. I mean immediate, and it is here and now. Um, if you cannot uh, trust um, a certain leader to tell the truth, how are you as allies going to rely on uh, the United States um, as a firm and credible ally? Uh, it's normal to have doubts about the credibility of the U.S. commitment, given the geography. When your main protector is thousands and thousands of kilometers away, it's natural to worry whether or not um, the United States is going to be there when you need it. Um, and um, so I think there's something more that's been added uh, in this, particularly in the last week and certainly in the campaign uh, season. Um, so I, I do want to... Uh, highlight the, the, the phenomenon of the new administration combined with Brexit, combined with European uh, populism and the rise of right-wing parties. Um, all of that, I think, uh, is, is something of a crisis, and, and our whole discussion, I think, uh, this morning ought to uh, take that into account. At least that's my view. Uh, it leads to the question if globalization is, is obsolete, um, and that is very fundamental since the Allies have, in fact, provided the foundation of the global uh, post-war order. Uh, so on, on that happy note, um, let me move to, to very quickly to name three challenges that, um, <clears throat> that I've encountered in my, since my years in, in the Senate and the Pentagon and these other places. Um, there is a human tendency to function in stovepipes, and I don't have to elaborate on that. Uh, you know, Europeanists think about Europe and, and Asianists and so forth, um, and it is very hard to get them to, um, to, to think more broadly outside of the stovepipe. In addition, we have a kind of sibling rivalry that I've observed. Uh, I mean, this is my words now, but the, uh, the Europeans have a tendency to say, oh, you know, Asians are more important to you because that's where the growth is and the markets are and the money is. Uh, and look at your pivot, you know, that, that was a pivot away from Europe towards Asia. That's not true, but that was a perception. And then the Asians, for their part, have said, well, you really love Europe more than you love us, you know, because uh, a lot of your culture comes from Europe, and, and so, uh, uh, and they're white people, uh, mostly, and so you really love them more. And we have to say, no, no, we love you both. We're a global power. We have two coasts. Uh, I'm, I'm deliberately exaggerating, but there is some element of sibling rivalry in um, competing for U.S. attention between Europe uh, and, and our allies in Asia. Um, and then there's, of course, an economic preoccupation in Europe uh, with Asia and the challenge from Asia, uh, so very little in the way of political security um, uh, cooperation and coordination among the two. Um, threat perceptions are also very different. That's a challenge. In, uh, the Pew Research poll last year showed that only 33% of Japanese thought that Russia was a threat. Um, a whole bunch of threats uh, from cybersecurity, ISIS, and so on um, were greater in rank than the Russian threat. Whereas the chairman of our Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and Rex Tillerson, I believe, and General Mattis and others have named Russia as the main threat uh, to the United States, um, more so than ISIS. So, so where do we go from here? Um, the, the theme of institutionalizing is, is in this discussion. I, I think we have plenty of institutions. Plenty of institutions already, overlapping institutions. Sure, we can open up some membership here and there to, to the others, but the real need, I think, is for leadership. I mean, just as Bill Clinton um, uh, elevated APEC in the late 80s and made it a head of state meeting, I'm uh, sorry, not late 80s, or when he came into office in 93, just as Bill Clinton elevated um, APEC into a head of state meeting and really gave it some tremendous momentum. So we need leaders today 
who were willing to do the same thing to improve um, Atlantic Pacific uh, coordination. Um, that's, of course, always a problem. So I'm going to um, then turn finally to um, an area that isn't often discussed in the context of Atlantic and Pacific partnerships. We tend to think of Asia as um, East Asia. Um, the topic that I'm going to name may surprise you, but I think we need to start talking about the Indian Ocean. The Indian Ocean and the Bay of Bengal and the maritime commons uh, that exist uh, there. Uh, it's, it has the advantage of being kind of geographically in between Europe and Asia. It is beginning to be the scene of China-India naval rivalry. It is um, heavily transited uh, by a number of shipping routes and is indeed a focus and uh, an arena of piracy um, at sea, it's sometimes a, a haven for pirates. Uh, and it, there's an absolute state of lawlessness on the high seas. You may have read those horrific stories about uh, slaves kept in chains on ships and, and literally um, bondage uh, of, of uh, and no enforcement because it's, it's the high seas. We do have some nice precedents like the code on un unintended um, encounters at sea, cues it's called. Um, France is a member of that, no other European to my knowledge, but Asia is uh, a member. Um, and there's of course codes on, mar on uh, rescue at sea and a bunch of other things that we can borrow in um, using the Indian Ocean and the need to promote um, uh, the commons, maritime commons, um, that we can apply those things. Um, I think India is also worth talking about in this context. Um, obviously, the Indian Ocean brings in India in a big, big way. Modi is uh, struggling with a lot at home, but has um, been very active diplomatically, um, responding and in some cases initiating contacts with both Europe and um, Japan and Australia. Um, so there's some opportunities there, I think, which might be a little easier to deal with than some of the others. Um, because the, the common interest is really so clear um, and there are uh, precedents that can be applied. So um, finally, the uh, connectivity issue, I don't like that word particularly. Uh, we now have the WTO trade facilitation agreement. We have interest in the um, Bay of Bengal literal countries in promoting uh, the kinds of flourishing trade and investment in that region that prevailed in the pre-colonial era. There's a lot going on that I think we could tap into in a low-key way, build on some concrete initiatives, and thereby improve uh, our, our um, coordination among the three um, groups. So I'll stop there. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Frost. I think we'll just uh, continue to move down the line. So next up is uh, Mr. Kato. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, I usually uh, discuss international relations or national security issues, which I'm uh, specialized in, in the context of Japan versus China, or Japan, US versus China, Russia, or Japan uh, plus Europe versus something. So, but this, this uh, framework is really uh, new to me, Japan, Japan Europe, uh, and, and the United States. But it, uh, as I prepare these remarks, I realized that this is really relevant, and it gives me a lot of new ways to look at uh, the issues that Japan faces. And so, first of all, I'd like to uh, congratulate uh, the organizer to come up with this uh, setup. I, I think this is a really uh, intellectually challenging and relevant uh, way to look at uh, the international relations. So I'd like to uh, explain uh, Japan's view 
to this uh, Atlantic Pacific Partnership. Uh, as I said, basically uh, Japan's uh, uh, basic uh, strategy for diplomacy is what I will call America hugging. And, uh, and uh, right now, since the United States is moving toward America first, Japan's challenge is uh, to, to have the uh, relevance between our America hugging and the US America first. And, uh, and they're not really uh, uh, compatible, and that's, that's the challenge we have. Then the question is, how is this framework changes when Europe comes in? And uh, actually, uh, it is very productive. I I'll explain in a specific, based on a specific uh, case. Uh, last year, uh, UK, uh, of course, I know there is a discussion whether UK is a Europe or not, but uh, suppose <laughs> UK is a part of Europe. UK dispatched uh, four uh, Eurofighter uh, to Japan for the first time. And actually, they, uh, they, they went to uh, Korea as well. But uh, this was the first time that the United Kingdom dispatched uh, Air Force air assets uh, to that region and conducted a joint exercise uh, with Japanese Air Cell Defense Forces. And uh, it was, in a way, uh, sort of, a, from Japan's point of view, compensation for US, uh, UK unilateral uh, uh, participation in AIIB. But, uh, but uh, this dispatch of a Typhoon uh, fighters, Eurofighter Typhoon, to Japan had enormous impact on the strategic uh, cons perception in the region. Uh, it's just a four fighters, so it, just uh, as a matter of the capability, it's not much, but it has an enormous political messaging to the region. Uh, as you can imagine, and of course, UK said it has nothing to do with China, but uh, uh, that's not the way it was looked at. And uh, in addition to the joint exercise with Japan, uh, those uh, Eurofighters on their way back uh, flew over South China Sea. And the uh, UK ambassador to the United States uh, said, uh, in addition to this uh, operation of flying over of the South China Sea, uh, UK ambassador here said that uh, uh, when uh, UK's new aircraft carrier will be operational in 2020, uh, they'll be uh, sailing in South China Sea. And so this was, uh, uh, as you can imagine, in, ter in terms of solving the maritime uh, issues uh, with China over South China Sea, and in, for that matter, East China Sea as well, enormous impact because this, this uh, decision of UK and action of UK uh, multilateralized uh, the issue of South China Sea, and, or you can say internationalized. Uh, Ch China's, China's approach to uh, these issues are always uh, territorial issues are bilateral issues, you know, and the uh, out of the region country had nothing to do, so we, uh, you know, th they should stay away. But and that was the kind of a typical criticism uh, toward uh, United States, and so this kind of uh, multilateralization or internationalization of the this issue is the last thing China wanted, and the UK did it, and so it had enormous impact, and it helped us, Japan. Uh, to an enormous ex extent uh, to, to deal with this issue. So uh, adding UK uh, to the security issues in this region this way uh, was, uh, was really uh, good uh, for us to the region. This is security issue. 
Okay, then uh, what about the econ and trade? Uh, as we know, uh, TPP is gone, dead, and uh, this is a. This has a. This could have a devastating impact on Japan's Abe administration because TPP was not just a multilateral trade uh, mechanism for Japan, but uh, it has, of course, a strategic uh, uh, significance, and also uh, it has a enormous. Uh, uh, leverage, it could create an enormous political leverage for Abe to maintain uh, his political buoyancy in Japan because TPP could be used as a, uh, external pressure or gaiatsu in Japanese to proceed his uh, uh, economic reform at home. Yeah. And he could use TPP as an excuse to override the opposition uh, within Japan. Uh, but with TPP being deprived of, now he cannot do it. And this was the, uh, the last, uh, what we call third arrow of Abenomics. And uh, in order for him to uh, implement the third arrow of Ab Abenomics, TPP was a must. And uh, uh, Trump deprived him of that. And uh, so it seems that uh, uh, Abe's, uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy is driven by individual economic interests rather than uh, common values or universal values uh, uh, which the pre-Trump uh, U.S. administration, most of them, except for Bush administration, used as a main driver uh, for the foreign policy. And Japan also uh, takes this approach of using common values, especially uh, uh, toward uh, revisionist state like uh, China. And, uh, and, uh, and it was really important for, for Japan to have United States uh, staying, that, uh, uh, t staying that approach to this region. But now, uh, Trump, Trump does not, President Trump does not say even a word of democratic promotion or human rights uh, through his campaign and also in that inaugural address. He didn't say anything, right? And he's more interested in common economic interests and cut the deal uh, with his uh, you know, uh, trading partners. And this approach really uh, 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 damages uh, Japan's uh, 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 diplomatic standing in the region. And uh, I think European countries or uh, uh, Europe can help Japan to stay, uh, to help, to, to engage the United States in the way it, it used to be. And uh, I, I, I suppose that Europe is still, uh, I believe in uh, common universal values. So I, I, in this sense, uh, I think uh, adding the Europe to this equation can mean a lot uh, uh, to us Japanese. And uh, what, sh what should we do uh, from, what can we do from now on? Uh, basically, from Japan's point of view, the regional uh, balance, strategic balance, uh, or a strategic environment is a competition between uh, uh, Western uh, countries with the Western values, uh, democracy, and uh, liberal international order. Uh, versus a revisionist country like uh, China and, uh, and uh, uh, Russia. And uh, right now, 
the Western camp is rather uh, messy with uh, Trump being a president of the United States and Europe being busy dealing with the aftermath of Brexit. And, uh, and uh, if I talk with my Chinese friends, they are getting more and more confident in their own system. They say, okay, the, the West uh, failed in economy after dealing with the Lehman shock, and now the democratic political uh, system is really failing. Uh, they are not really creating a positive effect. And so what we, what we have to do in a broader, in a broader brush is that uh, Japan, we, we being Japan, Europe, and the United States, is that we have to be su successful. We have to show that our system works, and uh, both uh, politically and economically, and so that the revisionist countries do not have uh, wrong confidence in, the, in, their, in their system in the way they do run the, uh, uh, you know, the business in, in the world. And uh, to, be, to be a little bit more specific, I think uh, those three camps has to work coordinatedly to defend the liberal international order. I think it is very important right now uh, uh, for the entire world uh, to have the confidence in a liberal international order, especially when our systems are not really uh, functioning uh, very well. And if and, you could begin to wrap up. Okay, sure. Uh, and and if, I, if I go into the more specifics like cyber, I can have more uh, uh, things to say, but perhaps I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, so Dr. Frost started us off with a self-described pessimistic uh, view on these issues. Uh, Mr. Cato measured, but, but somewhat more optimistic, I would say. Uh, Dr. Fallon, over to you. Where, where do you stand on this question? Well, first of all, I want to thank the Atlantic Council for the invitation to attend. It's been an amazing time to be here in Washington, D.C. It feels very unsettled. I'm based in Brussels. And the day I arrived, George Orwell's book, 1984, became the number one bestseller in the U.S. So it kind of gives you an idea of where we're coming from. So to paraphrase Vladimir Lenin, he said, there are decades where it feels like nothing happened, and a week when it feels like decades have happened. And that's what this week has felt like to me, and I think many people in this room would agree. Under the new uh, American, America First foreign policy, it's left a lot of people out in the cold. Europe has originally kind of felt that the Trump narrative was a way to win votes, and that once he's president, things will be a bit different. But it appears that uh, he's following through with many of his, promise, his election promises. Um, for example, Frank Walter Steinmeier, the German foreign minister, wrote in Bild that Trump's election uh, means the end of the old world. The 20th century is gone. So the Europeans are really taking this on the chin. They're taking it very hard. So Confucius, shifting over to Asia, Confucius has said to live in interesting times. And that's what we're cursed with right now. We have US isolationism and protectionism, European populism. Russian resurgence, China's growing assertiveness in East China Sea, South China Sea. So the old, the old order and the international architecture does appear to be eroding all around us. Sounds a bit negative, but that's how it looks like, especially from Europe. So this morning I got up, I turned on the TV. What did I see? Um, Prime Minister May is in town trying to negotiate some sort of deal, which she's not really supposed to do because they haven't uh, triggered Article 50 yet, so she might get a, quite a disappointment. And so Brexit kind of started this unraveling even before Trump came to office. And then I saw China steps up pre preparedness for possible military conflict with the US, and then just the icing on the cake was Gorbachev uh, was interviewed and said that it looks like the world 
is preparing for World War III. So I thought, wow, what should I talk about today? <laughs> okay. So as we know, and as, as Professor Kato mentioned, a TPP. So, and you gave us the Asian aspect of it. So TPP triggered a response from, from China, and that was the Belt and Road Initiative, also known as One Belt, One Road. So now TPP triggered this response, and now TPP is finished, but China's Belt and Road Initiative is like the signature program, and it's, it's huge. It's overland, it's three roads, I call it three roads. Um, you have the overland uh, through Eurasia, all, and the end point is Europe. You have the maritime component, and I would say the third is through the Arctic. And so there are three components of this. And it's, it's huge, it's expansive. China has kind of re-embroidered its history, and you know, it can even include Vanuatu. So places that weren't traditionally on the Silk Road are part of this massive kitchen sink explanation. So China's been a huge winner of this, and they're thrilled you know, that the US has pulled back on TPP. So it's been a great gift to Xi Jinping. Um, and this kind of language that we've heard in the hearings about the South China Sea, uh, it actually helps Xi Jinping consolidate his power because he's saying, look, you know, we're really threatened by the US. All of you have to get behind me and support me. So it's really been a, a big gift, TPP and the, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, DC. So China definitely sees this period as a strategic opportunity. Because TPP, we had you know, seven years of negotiations. Japan put a lot of, um, Prime Minister Abe used a lot of political capital to get everyone on board. And the US turned out to be not a very reliable partner. So this sends a very dangerous message to allies in the region. Okay, so I'm gonna cover five uh, points. So there are leg legitimate issues between the US and China and EU in regard to, to trade. Um, but none of these, uh, IPR, overcapacity, steel, aluminum, um, various restrictions in FDI, these things can be worked out and the EU and the US can work together and respond directly to Chinese policies that violate these trade rules and possibly distort the global market through the WTO. Um, second point, if Europe can take a more active role in its own neighborhood, it can free up US military attention toward Asia. I, I call it the Jay-Z approach. Um, Europe feels that they have so many problems with Euro crisis, the refugee crisis, uh, Europe un unraveling, that they see that the South China Sea is so far away, we have too many problems, and you know, we've got 99 problems and the South China Sea ain't one of them. So they don't, it's very, very difficult to get their support on these issues. And we've seen with the July 12th permanent court of arbitration decision, what happened there. Now the Belt and Road Initiative is, is rather new, but it's already you know, planted some interesting seeds. We've seen with the Central Eastern European countries called the 16 plus one. So China has carved out this sub-regional group within Europe, and 11 of them are EU member states, five are non-EU member states, so it's kind of um, both EU and non-EU member states that China has invested a great deal in, and uh, GHC, Greater Headquarters China. So Greece, Hungary, and Croatia were the three countries uh, of the EU that voted not really to support the EU statement on the South China Sea. So the US originally felt that they could have a strong statement um, about the July 12th uh, arbitration from the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague, and the EU really kind of let the Americans down. And so they didn't speak with one voice in regards to important issues of China, and it's China's investments, especially in Hungary, because Hungary, we know, released a, a statement separate from the EU, which has never been done, it's not usually done because 
people are breaking ranks. It's when the EU makes a statement, they speak for all 28 member states. But when Hungary broke out and really used the language of China in their statement, it showed the influence of China and how, in effect, they could buy a statement from the EU. So China got what they wanted, almost a neutral statement from the EU on the South China Sea. And that didn't help you know, support uh, other Asian member states, didn't really fancy how the Europeans uh, came out so weak on this statement. Next point, environment. Uh, I know it's not such a popular issue, but in Europe it's almost like a litmus test. We were talking about the, the global commons here, but the Europeans really feel that it's a litmus test if after all of this work, all these negotiations, if this new uh, administration throws away the Paris deal, there's gonna be some problems. And China is not waiting in the, in the wings. They're saying, we will champion uh, the environment and we'll join with Europe. They're trying to partner with Europe, weakening the transatlantic alliance. So the U.S. is kind of giving them another issue that they can join with Europe. So China and Europe will work together on environmental issues and also strengthen China's soft power. So China comes out as a winner in many areas here. Uh, fourth point, Europe's export of dual-use technology is strengthening China militarily. Now, we all know that there is an uh, arms export. Uh, there's an arms embargo. But each EU member state is able to interpret that in their own unique way. So there's, it's very leaky, and this is causing a big problem. So with tight US budgets, just if, if we could put a little more pressure on Europe to tighten their uh, dual-use technology transfers to China, that could actually be quite helpful to the US. We've seen some growing uh, change, for example, in Germany uh, with the sale of KUKA, a robotics company, to China. That kind of was a wake-up call for the Germans, and then, um, Extron, which sells uh, chips. Um, but there is no equivalent of CFIUS in, in Europe. And there has been some discussion of making this uh, Europe-wide, but I don't see it ever happening because each member state is very jealous of uh, in foreign investment, and they wouldn't want to give that uh, possibility for Europe. But it doesn't mean that each member state can't strengthen it themselves and have reviews of the strategic importance of these investments for, for China's growing foreign uh, direct investment in Europe. And lastly, and probably the most important thing, is the battle of the narrative. Well, what's a narrative? It's a nice story. And China's you know, Belt and Road Initiative is like reaching out. It's win-win. It's mutual. It's making trade, building bridges, um, improving ports, making everybody's economy grow. And what's the US narrative? America first. So this is a very difficult narrative to sell. And I think we have to think about this and how we're going to strengthen uh, support of the international rules system. Um, so there's uh, the gray rhino is a highly probable, high impact, yet neglected threat, similar to a black swan is something you don't expect, or the elephant in the room. We see this coming right at us, and what are we going to do about it? So the prosperity and security-based uh, international architecture is now being threatened. So I, I, I'm so grateful that the Atlantic Council is actually having a discussion on this, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Fallon. Uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Nicholas Swanstrom. I think the challenge for you is to come up with a catchier way of describing uh, Europe's approach to Asia uh, than the, the Jay-Z rule. So let, let's see if you can do it. Uh, well, actually, I, I'm going to be probably even more pessimistic, actually. Okay. <laughs> uh, looking, at, looking at the whole European situation, what was just, Teresa just mentioned, different narratives. Uh, Europe have very different um, security outlooks. Um, one, of, of course, is Russia. 
which is an absolutely essential part of this when we're looking at hard security, which of course uh, diminishes China as a threat. China is not the same, we don't view that the same way the United States does. Uh, and of course, with the Brexit coming up now, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing for Europe, with the Brexit, it's going to have financial uh, problems. But the uh, UK has been the most fierce opponent for deeper integration. So with the uh, UK leaving, we can actually have a, a tendency for more integration, if you're going to see a silver lining in this. Uh, I'm more worried about elections in France and other European countries coming up, uh, which would probably make uh, the credibility of leaders being even more, even more problematic, not only in the US. But I'm going to turn back a bit to institutions, because I think that uh, we do have a problem. Europe has a tremendous problem. And I'm not speaking, giving a Japanese view or anything like that, because or from, from a European sense, because there are no European view when it comes to security. And this is actually one of the problems we're facing. We don't have a common position on security issues. We are very divided over Russia. We're very divided over immigration. We're very divided over our regional neighborhood, which is the three most important issues. And of course, environment is something we are maybe have a more um, agreement about. And then, looking as far away as China, we're even more divided. So what we're looking at is a situation where Europe very much needs to get its act together and trying to figure out how do we view our security position? What do we see? What is the consensus, the least common denominator? And I think this is where we come into uh, non-traditional security threats. I think that's also where it's easiest to find a uh, common position. When we're dealing with cybersecurity, we're dealing with an environment. Now when the UK is leaving us, I'm not sure we're going to have such a huge focus on maritime security simply because we're not as strong as the UK uh, was. But that said, we, we do need uh, the transatlantic link, and I find that extremely important. Uh, Julian Lewis from UK actually made a, in a presentation from, I think, the UK Parliament, made a uh, reference to if we had to have a transatlantic cooperation in 1914 and 1939, Germany would probably never, probably never attack Belgium or uh, Poland. So even if we have these problems today, and we, we have a problem finding a common language, it's still extremely it's, it's still important. And the problem, of course, is the EU is a free rider of this security position. And that is also a, um, we pay, in 2015, we paid half of what the United States did on defense issues. On, the, on, the, on defense. Well, and this is not only a question for NATO, this is also a question for European integration, European defense. Uh, and of course, uh, Russia being the, the, uh, uh, the main uh, threat for us. And I, I'll actually speak about cybersecurity because I think that's uh, what comes up later. And Europe needs to get up to its 2% that NATO has put up. But 2% is a good start, but it's probably not the end. We need to start matching what the international expenditure. We need to realize that we live in a very difficult neighborhood. But 
to get it out. And as, as you said, with Hungary, with other issues, we are very divided. And so, but I see Donald Trump, in a sense, uh, as a bit of a blessing for Europe. Uh, because suddenly we realize that it's not evident that the United States will defend us. It's not evident that NATO will be a strong uh, pillar in the defense. And we, start, we need to start looking for our own defending ourselves. <clears throat> so maybe that can trigger response in Europe and starting to look at how to better defend ourselves with the more investments in the defense industry, et cetera. And that in itself would then strengthen NATO. Suddenly Europe could be more of an equal partner in NATO, which we're not today. Uh, so I, I do buy that, um, uh, that criticism that the uh, U.S. has delivered for a long time uh, towards most of the NATO members. Some are doing better than others. Uh, but I think the problem we're facing now is who should we listen to in the United States when it comes to the transatlantic link? Are we going to listen to President Trump? Or are we going to listen to some of his uh, colleagues? Will Russia remain a main threat for the United States? Can we rely on that? If we can rely on that, I think Europe would be more at ease assisting the United States otherwise, other places. But right now, I think the, the big fear and the big insecurity is where, where do we stand? What can come out of this? And then it comes, of course, into China and cybersecurity. Uh, just to mention a, a quick opening up there. I mean, th I think here is what we really have a good opportunity for collaboration. When you look at the United States and Europe, we share the basic perception of cybersecurity. We look at the individual, and I, I would actually add, uh, of course, Japan to this as well. It's individual security, it's company security. When you look at Russia and China, it's more state security. This is how to prevent uh, criticism of state. This is how to maintain state stability. Here we have an agreement on the normative base. And I think that in this, we have an opportunity to start defining what a rule-based uh, system would look like and how we more effectively can coordinate our policies. But the problem, again, is not necessarily the United States, it's Europe. What is the European view on cybersecurity? How do we view this? And this doesn't have to be directed towards a state or um, in a particular <coughs> state. It has to be based on rules and norms. And I think that's actually very positive because, of course, the Europeans, we don't like to hang out China because China is an incre increasingly important partner. And we will collaborate more and more with China on environmental issues, on trade, on these issues, where currently the administration in the United States seems to have more problem with. But for us, this is an opportunity. However, when it comes to these non-traditional security threats, we do have that common denominator. And I think that that would be um, probably the, the outline of um, collaboration. That doesn't mean, I should say that, that doesn't mean I think that when you have President Xi Jinping in Davos claiming to be now the, the defender of free trade, 
I think we have to take that with a great deal of skepticism, uh, uh, looking at uh, currency devaluations and, and all of that. But at least he speaks the language. He invites for that cooperation. Right now, we don't get that invitation for cooperation in the United States. And I think that is the, it's a big problem. So I agree with the former speakers that the big winner of, of this is really China. China has been an enormous winner regarding this. And that's why also we need to move together with Japan, the United States, and Europe and try to figure out what are our common values and how do we project them on an international level. So I'll, I'll stop there. I think I've spoken too much. No, uh, right on time, actually. So thank you very much. Uh, so some interesting opening remarks, some interesting areas of agreement and disagreement. Uh, seems that there's a lot of agreement on the idea that non-traditional security threats may be an area where there can be greater cooperation. Uh, some interesting disagreement on what the election of President Trump means and may, 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 does the election of Trump maybe actually uh, help in some ways uh, Atlantic Pacific partnerships. Um, so that ends the opening remarks. We'll, we'll turn uh, in just a moment to uh, uh, discussion and question and answer from the audience. I see a lot of expertise in the audience, so begin thinking about your questions. Uh, before we turn there, though, I did want to uh, discuss the polling results. So when you came in, we asked you a number of questions. Uh, we have the polling results. You can see them on the uh, slide in the back here. Uh, so first we ask, uh, does European policy toward Asia in general and China in particular help or hinder efforts to strengthen a rules-based international order. Uh, the overwhelming majority, 69%, argued that uh, European policy toward Asia helps. Uh, European policy toward Asia helps strengthen the rules-based international order. Uh, so uh, positive response there, kind of uh, bolstering the, the purpose of, of today's meeting. Uh, second question, if we can turn to the second question, a little bit more mixed. Uh, this question was, do you think U.S. allies in Asia expect more active support from Europeans on security issues, such as North Korea or the South China Sea? Uh, 59, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 59 percent said yes. Uh, U.S. allies in Asia do expect more active support from Europeans. 41 percent said no, they're not expecting such help. Uh, so again, uh, positive, but a little more mixed. Uh, and finally, let's turn to the third question. Uh, in addition to economic engagement, obvious uh, economic engagement between Europe and Asia, major trading partners, uh, but in addition to economic engagement, do you think Europe should play a larger role in security in Asia? Uh, again, overwhelmingly uh, positive response. 73% said yes, 27% uh, said no. Uh, so I think, uh, again, think about your questions, but I think I'll maybe make this the, the first question uh, to the panel. What do you make of these uh, responses? Your, uh, opening comments seemed fairly pessimistic uh, on Atlantic Pacific uh, partnerships in some ways, but it seems that uh, these poll results suggest some optimism, at least among the, the people in the room. So uh, how do you square that circle? And who would like to begin? Uh, well, I'll weigh in. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no. Well, I'm not sure that phrasing it as optimism, pessimism is, is the right way to do it. I'm, I think it's, I was trying to convey a sense of, of crisis. Um, the comment on... Um, European role in security, in my mind, really has to be broken down into traditional and non-traditional security. I, I don't think the Pacific Command necessarily wants a whole lot of European uh, hard security or traditional security presence. Uh, I don't think the, they're pushing for it, but the range of non-traditional security uh, issues is huge, and yeah. I think there's a great deal that Europe can, uh, can, can contribute there. So that would be my qualifier. Nicholas, you were about to jump Well, in. I mean, uh, 
I mean, this is what I would like it to look like. I mean, Europe should have a greater role. Europe should be more engaged. Uh, and I, I fully agree with the non-traditional security threats. That's where Europe can actually play an important role. But still, we, we come back to the fact that um, Germany and France has now begun to initiate a closer military cooperation. We're looking to, for that discussion to, to evolve. But the problem is, you ask 28 governments of Europe define traditional, non traditional or non-traditional security. They can't do that. Mm -hmm. Define what is the most important question for your respective country. I mean, the, the consensus we had almost here, we wouldn't actually get that in Europe. Mm -hmm. So I think this is also what we come. We need a defense white paper who explains this is our position, this is where we stand, this is how we define it, and this is how we do to action on this, to make it more actionable. So um, I'm very optimistic, though, and I'm very happy that people are optimistic. But um, I think um, Europe needs to get its act together. And I hope we do, because I think EU and European uh, integration is fundamental. So I'm actually pro-Europeanist. But Dr. Fallon? Um, the EU global strategy had the misfortune of being published on June 24th the day after Brexit. So probably none of you might have even heard about it. So they worked on it for about two years, trying to get a narrative about what their global strategy should be. And of course, when you have 28 member states, it's very broad strokes. But they do have a section on Asia, and, and they also had a separate China paper. So Europe is getting their act together. They are focusing on this region. But what can they actually do? What can they actually bring to the table is important. But the, the conversation has begun. They've actually put it down on paper. So I think that's a positive step. But there's also this fear, and you hear it all the time in the hallways in Brussels at the European institutions. We don't want to upset China. And this is a very powerful lever that China has used. And so although they've made the language, and you go to the Shangri-La Dialogue two years ago, uh, Federica Mogherini said, don't think of us just as an economic area, think of us as a security provider. And I had the chance to raise my hand and ask her, what did that mean? And she just really never seemed to answer. So they make these bold statements, but where's the follow-up? This year at the Shangri-La Dialogue, we had uh, French Minister Ledrian Le said that he wanted to have an EU-led uh, uh, phone ops uh, in the region. Well, nothing really came of that. And so the Europeans can make these bold declarations at high-level uh, security conferences, but I don't really see you know, any follow-up. So maybe the US can kind of push them a little harder. And Mr. Kato, any thoughts on the polling? Yes, uh, I, I think those bold, bold result, the result uh, uh, backed up my uh, presentation that uh, uh, what the UK did uh, in, in terms of uh, sending the uh, fighters to Asia and made a flyover to South China Sea really helped to uh, stabilize the uh, the region and uh, try to <coughs> deter China's uh, action uh, in South China Sea, and so it sh it really shows, as a fact, as a matter of fact, uh, that uh, there is a role that European countries can play in a very specific way to improve the security situation in, in Asia. And if I may add one more thing, uh, this kind of geographical, geographical related, geopolitical challenge is really important, and uh, I, I don't deny that uh, importance. And actually, it's very important. But at the, at the same time, we are, we are facing a, a beyond geography challenge uh, collectively, which is uh, the attack on uh, 
interde uh, interdependence. And uh, you know, uh, for example, chi China is uh, employing uh, uh, policies which uh, try to exploit the vulnerability of economic interdependence. For example, that it's a it's a way a geo geoeconomic uh, uh, way of. Uh, <coughs> Uh, imp uh, implementing, uh, achieving the geopolitical uh, goal. For example, the uh, de facto embargo of rare, rare earth metal to Japan after the Senkaku incident, China is uh, trying to use economic leverage to coerce the regional state. And it's low intensity compared with the use of force and easy, easy to use and it's, it's hard to deter and it's hard to, it's hard to uh, counter. But th this is uh, emerging more and more and the most serious uh, impact of this new approach, geoeconomic approach, is is to make economic interdependence vulnerability. And economic interdependence is the key for prosperity for everybody. But now, economic interdependence is becoming a weakness and something that you you cannot just uh, dwell on. And this is a really serious issue. And I think you know. Uh, along with uh, protecting the liberal international order, I think J Japan, Europe, United States has these really ser uh, important common challenges to, to face. Thank you. Great. Well, I am a political scientist by training, so in addition to these good explanations, I would also add that there may be a selection effect going on, that the people who believe in strengthening Atlantic Pacific partnerships are the people who showed up today <laughs> uh, and the others, uh, others stayed home. Um, but as I said before, there is a lot of expertise I see in the audience, so I wanted to open it up now to question and, and answer from the audience. Um, please raise your hand, and when I call on you, uh, please state your name and affiliation. And let's uh, start with Harlan. We have a mic uh, Mics are coming around. <laughs> uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. I'd like to thank the panel for a very thoughtful discussion. Uh, I want to raise a very, very provocative question uh, based on the uh, discovery of George Orwell's unpublished book, 2017, um, <laughs> about America first. And if you take the logic of America first uh, to its conclusion, one of the reasons why Donald Trump believes NATO is obsolete is because he believes he can do a deal, a grand bargain with Russia. And that's what he's going to seek to do. Therefore, the alliance becomes less important. I think what you've seen happen towards Mexico is going to be an attempt on the administration to do the same to some degree with China. And you have Peter Navarro nestled into the bowels of the White House to support that. Now, if it turns out that this speculation is correct, that America first means that we're going to lessen our responsibilities in Europe because of a decline Russian threat, and we're going to be more aggressive with China, what does that do to the rest of the world? Great. Thank you. Who, who would like to take that one? <laughs> Don't all speak at once. <laughs> um, are you going to help me out, Dr. Frost? I was just looking at him. <laughs> no, go ahead. I told you. Teresa, why did you go first? Okay, so I'll just plunge in on that very difficult question, very provocative question, as you said. At NATO, there are people who've had a great deal of experience working with Russia, so they're kind of confused by this narrative that we can work with Russia because they're so frustrated. They've been trying for quite a long time, and, and it's not working. So this, you know, we've seen approaches towards Russia, the reset, um, and these things have not worked. And who's, I mean, I, I, maybe the John Mearsheimer idea of stop poking <coughs> Russia, we need them to um, balance against China. But 
Russia knows this uh, narrative as well, and I don't think they're being very cooperative. So uh, it looks good on paper, this theory, but I think the reality will be quite different, and they'll be very surprised. I have a, something to add, I think. Um, I, I don't think China is as hostile to the liberal economic order as Russia by a long shot. I mean, they have uh, played both sides of this. They have benefited enormously from it. Uh, and the very fact that they're behaving in a somewhat low-key way at the moment, watching to see what happens, um, to my mind, indicates that they, they, although they have gained for all the reasons we've discussed, TPP and so on, uh, I, I don't think they're in the same category. So as far as the meaning for the rest of the world, I think they're just going to go right on. Um, and uh, their own relationship with Russia, as you know, is alignment without alliance, as some people say. Uh, so I'm not sure that uh, the China element is going to make such a big difference. I do think that, that we could have uh, Ukraine and uh, maybe the Baltics under serious threat. Other thoughts from the panel? I bet he has an idea himself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back to the uh, audience and let's uh, go to this side of the room uh, over here, please. And uh, again, if you could state your name and affiliation. I'm Michal Safianik with the European Union delegation. Thank you very much to the Atlantic Council and the Embassy of Japan for organizing this fascinating and provocative um, discussion. Um, I would have a follow-up question for Dr. Frost and Dr. Uh, Swanstrom. Um, you have bo both talked about the importance of introducing new impetus or institutionalizing uh, the future cooperation on the issue. Uh, Dr. Frost talked about the leader's effort, a renewed leader's effort. And Dr. Swanstrom said, we, are, um, we, we need to agree what the common rules are and how to project them on the global level. So I just, since we are in a think tank setting, would like to ask you to uh, stretch our imagination and maybe say, given the new dynamics and the new leaders, uh, what the more concrete examples of this uh, could be. Thank you. Um. Well, to stick with the maritime example for a moment, there is the International Maritime Organization, which is a specialized branch of the UN, and they have committees on all of the relevant issues, um, and that could be significantly juiced up. We have a, another example might be we have resisted European Union participation in, the, um, in APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Maybe that's not such a good idea anymore. They're already members of the ASEAN Regional Forum. Um, so when I said that we have lots of institutions, I think, I think they're there or they could be tweaked um, to be uh, more specific. And there's also, we haven't talked about the private sector yet, uh, but public-private partnerships uh, are in many ways essential and they're gonna require um, not beggar thy neighbor policies on behalf of export credit agencies and insurance, but some sort of coordinated uh, effort, I think, to bring in the enormous uh, capital and technology resources that you need. You take the uh, One Belt, One Road, or you take the um, uh, uh, upgrading of, of ports um, through the, and other th things through trade facilitation agreement of the WTO. Lots of nitty-gritty stuff there that's going to require private sector participation. So how can we bring that in, into play? They're, they're not, not investing in Asian infrastructure, for example, because the opportunity isn't there. They're, in, they're not investing, they're sitting on their capital because the business climate isn't very good, right? 
And you can look at doingbusiness.org, you can look at transparency, and you'll see, guess what? That a lot of the countries that need infrastructure are, um, are, are, have very bad uh, opportunities. No contract enforcement, no rule of law, and so on. So you're gonna have to have some government involvement to make this pay off. And this is where I think there could be a whole lot of growth. Um, I also see growth, and I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, but going back to um, uh, Nicholas's point, there, there, there is a growing arms market in Asia. Uh, and this involves not only this, the manufacture of defense weapons, which could provide lots and lots of jobs, I have to say, uh, but also the transfer of technology. And this is a very old transatlantic issue. In the, you talked earlier about this. And there, for many years in the Cold War, there was something called the Coordinating Committee, COCOM, headquartered in the OECD, which consisted of NATO countries minus Iceland plus Japan. And they carried out rancorous, you know, contentious discussions about uh, technology transfer to, the, to, to China and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And the French were convinced that this was all a plot you know, for us to sell our stuff before they could sell theirs. And we had big fights with Sweden, actually, in those hmm. days. Uh, which was not a member of NATO, of course. Um, so, so that whole area of coordinating more on, on technology transfer, uh, Teresa mentioned CFIUS, I think that, the, that also needs uh, more coordination. Those are very nitty gritty and you need real experts to, to stick with it. And the goal has to be uh, to approach these issues in a more coordinated way. One can only hope that the new administration supports that. That's, those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Well, first of all, I mean, I would, what I want to see from Europe is, is also clarification what we, what, where we can actually put in our efforts. And now, as I said, I think this non-traditional security, the normative values, where we're good at, this is where we can actually play a role uh, in the short term. Then I also hope, of course, in the long term, we will be able to better project traditional security threats. And this is, to actually create that credibility, we don't only need institutional integration, all that. But we also need European defense research cooperation. We need to pull our resources together. We need to make sure that we have cooperation with Swedish defense industry, with the French defense industry, joint financing and joint development. That will then sort of, first of all, create jobs, as you were talking about, but also to make sure that we have an independent defense industry that supports European interests. So what I'm looking at is not only the the statements and, and that sort of, but actually very practical cooperation. And then I, what I also would like to see is it's actually usage of European forces uh, to get that experience. Now when we're sending away, I mean, we have a nominally uh, um, European cooperation in certain areas, but Swedes are Swedes when they leave and Germans are Germans. And I think that what we need to do is to create that sort of operational military structure that's still going to be subordinated, the national, but it's a start. And I think that uh, the French and Germans are doing a good job there. And I think that that's where we have to follow up. This is not going to be an easy process. This is going to take a long time. But I think that the reason the UK left, it was good reasons. They had a number of good points that European Union failed. So now it's up to the European Union and us Europeans to sit down and say, how do we fix that? We want to prevent further flight from Europe. And I think the defense industry and security concerns are one of these primary. Uh, now I'm, so, of course, a security person. So of course I think like this. 
Great. Let's go back to the floor. Um, yes, right here uh, in the blue jacket. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the discussion. My name is Garrett Mulrain. I'm an LLM student at GW. Um, I want to ask actually about the potential role of smaller countries and those maybe with growing economic, uh, growing economies, growing military structures. Uh, broadly, I think across the world, you can see a lot of examples of the little guy standing up to the big guy, as it were. Uh, yesterday, um, the Mexican president saying, like, canceling a visit is essentially a sort of slap in the face of the new administration. Um, it's always, it always seems to be that Scotland is the most vocal opponent to London. The Philippines successfully brought a case against China. Um, and, and despite all the, all the, the buildup and the rhetoric from NATO or the EU, it's actually the tiny nation of Estonia with its incredible cyber domain and wired infrastructure that is engaged in a cyber war against Russia. I'm just asking essentially, what is the role of these smaller countries, and is the game changing? Is are they now? Do they have to be now incorporated into that international order, or can we still just look to the post World War II powers? Thank you. Great, Dr. Fallon. Maybe we'll start with you on this one. If you'd like to come? <laughs> How come you're always giving me the hardest questions? All right. Well, that's a very good observation, and. From where I sit in Brussels, the idea if you get 28 member states to speak with one voice, they have much more say on the international stage. And it's very difficult. This is an area that's, that they're very um, weak on. Foreign policies like the ugly stepsister, the, you know, that's the one area. Economics, they're very good at cooperation, but foreign policy is something they're very sleepy on. Um, you gave the example of the Philippines, but you know, that was kind of a David and Goliath battle. But then how did it work out at the end of the day? It came as a surprise. You know, when Duterte you know, moved closer to China because he had this leverage over them because of the decision. So that kind of had an unintended consequence. I, I, most analysts didn't see that coming. Um, China has notoriously said, you know, we're a big country, you're a small country, and that's just a fact. So I think this idea of a small guy standing up to the big country might become more and more difficult. If ASEAN fails, if the EU fails, I think it's a big gain for China because it will be far more difficult for the little country to, to speak or make good trade deals or have a say in, in world foreign policy. Other thoughts on this? Well, this is irreverent, but if you haven't seen it already, you should see the Dutch satire on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Ending Sec with the, the big, second country? Yeah, the big <laughs> seal at the end, you know, it says America first, the Netherlands second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't have much to add. I think there is a legitimacy issue here, and, the, and people are sympathetic to small countries. But in, uh, and you look at Singapore, which punches above its weight in Asia because it, it's uh, strategic thinking and because it's focused on developing its own people, which is really the only resource they have. So not every small country brings the same amount of influence. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, you know, for ASEAN to hang together is better than having uh, the current situation, which is the Cambodia and Laos are, you know, really problematic in, in terms of ASEAN. Um, but I, uh, I, so I don't really see uh, fundamental changes in the picture, but, but legitimacy and perception, I think, uh, are part of the, uh, part of soft power. Mr. Cotton? I, I, if I echo uh, Ellen, what Ellen said, you know, uh, Neither, neither China nor United States can, uh, could not, uh, cannot create a region-wide uh, security uh, dialogue mechanism. They had to let the ASEAN uh, take the lead. So uh, 
ARF uh, is uh, based on uh, ASEAN, right? And uh, because of the uh, political uh, balance in, in the region, uh, major countries cannot necessarily exert its power in really creating that kind of mechanism. And so I, I think there is a role for small, smaller countries to play uh, in, in this kind of uh, uh, managing and, and uh, creating a, a regional order. And uh, <clears throat> just as Ellen said, uh, Singapore, uh, in that sense, is uh, playing a very uh, uh, smart strategic role, uh, hosting the Shangri-La Dialogue. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the very symbolic uh, way that you can see uh, the pot potential and possible role that smaller country can play and benefit the entire region. They balance, that's right, they mm -hmm. balance big countries. They want to have them play off against each other. And ASEAN has done this very successfully. Okay, great. We had a lot of questions and, and not much time, so let's go back to, uh, to the floor. And let's, uh, the young lady in the gray um, jacket. Hi, Danielle Pinskevich with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. So we're talking about the Atlantic space, but it also goes beyond the traditional US and EU. So we're looking at Latin America and Africa. And right now, Africa can be seen as um, receiving traditionally uh, uh, international aid um, from the United States and Europe, but what about China now investing a little bit more in foreign investments in the Africa region? Can we see that as being a new uh, playground um, between the regions? And you know, especially given the, uh, you know, uh, they're going to be having a larger. Um, sorry, I'm trying to figure out a better way to word this. Um, the younger generation is going to be the next working class. So how do they best invest? the United States and the EU into the Atlantic region as a whole, rather than just looking at the traditional US and EU perspective. Okay, who wants to jump in on this one? I can just, um, I actually argued for Sino-EU cooperation in Africa, especially now when the United States seems to be pulling out of, uh, of this. And it, you know, maybe even Japan, South Korea, people who do have a interest in developing in that region. And China is becoming a tremendous aid giver in Africa. And it's not always positive. And I'm not going to say European aid is always positive either. Uh, but I think the collaboration between these actors will be increasingly important. And let's be honest, if we, Africa needs enormous amount of resources. We need to find uh, cooperation rather than confrontation in Africa. And um, I'm not saying this is going to be a walk in a park, but I think China will be a uh, collaboration partner rather than anything else in Africa. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge all the good things they've done, and then also, of course, criticize for the bad things they've done, uh, because it goes both ways. But um, now, for me, I, I do see China as a, as a potential positive force. But that says, if United States would recommit to Africa, I think, of course, the US-European collaboration <laughs> would be much more sustainable because we shame the same normative base, but especially when it comes to social and political rights, et cetera. Dr. Frost, you look eager to get on this. Well, I was just going to say that I, uh, Japan has a role as well. But um, I think there's been some uh, transition. Uh, initially, it was all about natural resources and controlling all, all stages and, and bringing in 
it's still bringing in Chinese workers and then leaving. Um, I think there's been some pushback. There's been some more concern in Africa, I think, about equality uh, of these projects. There's been more concern about more equitable um, terms uh, on, the, on the part of the African governments. Um, there's been some concern about the treatment of indigenous people in these big projects. So I, I have the impression that there's a, a little less of a grab than there seemed to be at first. The mention of quality reminds me of um, one of the many things Japan has done in response to One Belt, One Road is, is hardly ever noticed because Japanese don't sell themselves very well, if I do <laughs> say so, Mr. Kato. <laughs> and it's called PQI, Partnership for Quality Infrastructure. Right? What has Japan got? It's got quality. And so if you're addressing uh, projects in that part of the world, in Africa, for example, you want to make sure that, that what's built is safe and high quality, it's going to last. And uh, Japan itself has a huge interest in raw materials. So I, I would broaden what Nicholas said to include Japan. Mr. Kata. I think uh, what Nicholas said was really interesting because uh, uh, China has not really clearly spelled out their strategy toward Africa. And uh, even uh, One Belt, One Road, Ida Iru, there's no, no official clear, detailed uh, paper or document which explains what it is. And uh, it, it's the same thing with the China dream uh, or rejuvenation of Chinese nation. All those things, they are all slogans. And uh, if, if I talk to, I've been invited to conferences a lot and uh, talk with uh, Chinese scholars in think tanks, and uh, I ask them, why, 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 why don't you know? Uh, why doesn't the government of uh, uh, China really explain, or the Communist Party explain what, what they are? But that's, that's their style. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, so we shouldn't be so naive to, to interpret their intentions uh, in a you know, uh, favorable way. We should be, we should be really cold-eyed and uh, realistic and see what they do. And uh, I think we should make a judgment based on that. Because, you know, for example, Ida Ilu, a lot of economists uh, th think that it's a way to absorb the overcapacity or over inventory of China in order to salvage the, uh, China's economy. And, uh, <clears throat> and if, I, if I talk to them, some of them admit, but some of them say they don't know. And so, so it, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a Big slogan uh, dropped from the mm -hmm. uh, party leadership and the scholars and the policy experts trying to substantiate on their own. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of policy making uh, structure China has. It's totally different from ours. So, in the, so this ambiguity may, you know, makes uh, some people think that uh, you know, uh, what China is trying to do better than what they are really trying to mm -hmm. do. So we should, we should be really realistic and careful. Thank you. I'll just make a sure. quick comment. There's a lot of uh, noise about EU-China cooperation in Africa, but I've been mm. doing research on this, and there's a lot more noise than actually what's taking place. But I'm surprised no one here mentioned uh, Djibouti, you know, yeah, this overseas that. base that China's building in Africa. This is a huge game changer. Also, China has the most uh, UN peacekeeping forces in Africa, so they're getting a lot of experience on the ground and you know, soft power. So 
China makes a lot of overtures towards the EU, but four out of the five projects, you know, they're not really cooperating. So it's very little, but it's getting a lot of papers, a lot of conferences, and a lot of public diplomacy. Okay, if we keep it brief, I think we have time for one more question uh, right here. Hi, Bill Timmy from IBM. Just a quick question is uh, amplifying on, I think, Mr. Cato's very important point is, are closer ties and dependencies economically a stabilizing factor because it gives people pause or destabilizing because it, people think it gives influence and a leverage point? Kind of a classic question of uh, IR theory, but uh, so we'll make that the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll make that the last question, but if, if people want to also use this as an opportunity for final uh, thoughts, we can, we can do that as well. I, I, didn't, I didn't get his question. What, what was oh, does economic interdependence lead to greater uh, stability? Uh, or instability? Agreements, uh, trade agreements, or uh, Just independence? Just economic ties. Just economic ties. Give people pause, or I've got influence, you must do what I say, or otherwise you're going to suffer repercussions. What I, what I said was, that's the only way we, we can go for the common prosperity. And so, you know, we, sh we shouldn't make it a weakness or vulnerability. Uh, that's that's not the way uh, the responsible player in, in this world uh, uh, should play the game. That's, that's what, I, what I say. You know, there's been economic interdependence since ancient times, right? I mean, there's um, Chinese silks found in Roman tombs. There's pepper tax in Alexandria from the Malabar coast of India in ancient times. So it, it isn't as if we can stop economic interdependence. I think the, the answer to your question is both. I mean, it's going to benefit some people, and it's going to hurt some people if they aren't able to adjust. But on the whole, when you look at the growth of post-war economic uh, interdependence, it is hugely responsible for an enormous lifting of, of living standards uh, nationally and globally. Now, when you get down to the individual, let's say I'm a construction worker, let's say I, or a steel worker, and I've lost my job, well, you can tell me the unemployment rate is 4.9%, but for me, the unemployment rate is 100%. Mm. So you, you go from that question, that type of analysis, into political economy and you know, who does what to whom and what adjustment policies are being... That's exactly what Trump yeah. exploits, right? Well, he exploits it because he, he brings up our innate fear of change and the fact that there are communities left behind in globalization, for sure. But it's not, we're not going to be able to stop it. And nor should we. I mean, that's one of the challenges China's facing when it comes to yeah. Central Asian Africa and all that. When unemployment is coming up, you, yeah. for example, you go to the bazaars in Bishkek. Uh, when the Soviet Union was there, it was a 100% Russian products, uh, not so much local, but at least the perception was for local. Today, it's 90 plus percent Chinese products. And of course, the local people see that. And that is destabilizing. So the, 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 the challenge is how to turn that around, so as you said. But China's really noticed that. And, but of course, for any small country, and coming from a small country, heavy dependence on a larger nation is the challenge, without, without doubts. You know, if, if we would have been dependent on Russian oil as, as a Swedish state, I don't think we would have criticized Russia as harsh as we do. But thank God we have Norway. <laughs> uh, so we can, we, we can criticize. And that can come into the small states. I think small states do have a role to play. But you also need that larger alliance behind you. 
that's why we need the EU. That's why we need the transatlantic or trans-Pacific cooperation, where you can back it up and say, you can be small guy punching for something very specific, but I have a you know bigger collaboration behind me. Great, thanks, Dr. Fallon. A final brief comment. That's a very good question about economic interdependence because when we look back at economic history um, during World War II. Britain had no dye stuffs. They couldn't dye their uniforms. They were so dependent on Germany. But they managed to go to war anyway. So this idea, and then we, they gave birth to inter, uh, Imperial Chemical Company. So before that, they were so interdependent within Europe, but it didn't seem to put the brakes on any sort of war. But now we have these far more complicated uh, production chains. And I think this is a key question. How is this going to play out? And China is leveraging this uh, to its, its benefit. So it's a bit of a different ballgame. It's very much more complex uh, chains. And I think it, we can't really draw a lesson on history from that. So I, this, watch this page. There's Thank been you. a failure of messaging on production networks and supply chains. I mean, when you see these labels made in China, made in China, you're probably all wearing or carrying something that says made in China. Chances are it's four or five different countries that have supplied parts and components. Mm -hmm. And so and we and all of these countries participating export and import um, parts and components. But it's stamped made in China. And that creates a lot of trade uh, resentment. When I teach um, international relations theory courses at Georgetown, and so it's been a classic debate for 2,000 years. Does greater <laughs> interdependence lead to more uh, conflict or more cooperation? Uh, I think the balance of evidence, though, does show that it, there is uh, a correlation, at least, between increased economic interdependence and greater levels of cooperation, uh, less conflict. And so I think this is a good note to end on. It would be one reason why it would be great, I think, to have greater uh, cooperation between the Atlantic and the Pacific communities. And that's what we got together today to discuss. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to end it there. Uh, I know I found this conversation very informative, and I hope you did as well. Uh, thank you very much for coming out and attending this event. And finally, please join me in thanking our excellent panelists.